Let's read. I'm going to start by reading the first 13 verses. We will go through the whole chapter. We're going to start by reading the first 13 verses, which is where we're going to majorly focus on this morning. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 13 initially. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, since they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. And don't complain as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as examples and they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. So, whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. Let's pray. And so, Father, we as your children, in humility, ask, would you speak? to our hearts today and help us to grow in wholehearted devotion to you. I pray, Lord, just as you've been encouraging us already, may we know the tender heart of God before us, but may we also know that that heart desires tender-heartedness in us and wholehearted devotion from us, not because you need it, but because we need it. And so, Lord, I pray, please speak to us, help us, help me, Lord. You know, I speak as one who is in great need of your help. Speak to us and help us and strengthen us by your Holy Spirit and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We've been going through these last few chapters where the Apostle Paul has been dealing with the issue of idol food. That is, animals that were sacrificed in a temple to an idol, to a false god. And whether or not it was okay for Christians to eat that food, to go to those temples, and to be amongst those idolaters and those worshippers. And Paul has been very carefully and painstakingly bringing teaching to this church in Corinth uh, that was a complete mess in so many ways and in so many regards. He's been appealing to them to love one another and to prefer one another, to outdo one another in showing honor, to to not be self-centered and seeking my own 
selfish desires first, but to be glorifying God as I love and care for my brother and my sister, to even deny my rights and my privileges in order to love my brother and my sister. And not only to love those within the church, but also to be a witness to those who aren't in the church yet. A witness to the love of Christ, the gospel, the good news. That Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. He became obedient to death, even, even death on a cross. That's our example. That's the example that we live by, and that's the challenge which has been coming. We've been thinking about our responsibility to one another and our responsibility to the world around us. But in this chapter, what Paul is really doing now as he crunches this issue before he moves on in chapter 11, 12, 13, he crunches the issue and he says, actually, guys, right, this is a Tim Blaber paraphrase, <laughs> actually, guys, this is about your heart. What's going on in your heart? Where's your worship? Who is your God? And so the title of today's message is Wholehearted Devotion. Wholehearted Devotion. Paul begins the passage by setting before the church in Corinth the example of the Israelites. If you can have the text just before you and if the text can remain on the screen, in the first few verses, we find the Apostle Paul holding the Israelites up as an example. Uh, I didn't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, about our ancestors. That's an interesting term to use right from the outset. The church in Corinth is majority Gentiles, i.e. non-Jews. Then he proceeds to speak about the Israelites, the Jews, and he says, hey, they're your ancestors. They're your ancestors. They're your family. That's your family. I'm going to speak to you about your family. Because the true family of God is not an ethnic thing, but it's a promise. It's a faith thing. So the story of the Israelites, the story of the Jews as they are led out of Egypt is the story of the Corinthians family and ancestors, and it's our ancestors too. So Paul would speak to you and I today and say, I want to talk to you about your ancestors for a moment, and I want to hold them up to you as an example. And he says this, our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses. He, he's talking about the Exodus. Your ancestors, hey, they were slaves. They were in bondage. They were in tyranny. They were under the rule of the evil Pharaoh, and they were led out through signs and wonders. The, the sea was open before them. They passed through the sea. They were led out of their captivity into freedom to a new land to become a new nation. That's what the Lord God did for your ancestors. They had a baptism. They were baptized into Moses through the sea and through the cloud. Now what does that mean? Well, it's to say that just as you have your baptism, they had a type of baptism. They, they had a, a death-to-life moment. There was a passing through the waters moment. It was symbolic of this salvation that God is achieving and working out. And not only did they have a baptism, we go on to find, but that they had spiritual food. They were provided with bread from heaven. And not only were they provided with spiritual food, but they were provided with spiritual drink. For water came through the rock. God provided with them water for them to drink. And they had the cloud, which was the presence of God, the very spirit of God before them. 
And in this text, if you notice, we find repeatedly the word all. They all received this. They were all led out. They all had a baptism. They were all fed. They all drank. Not just a few spiritual elites, but them all. This was a collective rescuing of God's people. They were led through the ocean. It was dramatic and it was wonderful and it was miraculous. And it was a work of Christ. Christ did it. Christ was the rock. Christ was the provider. Christ was the savior. Christ was the rescuer. It wasn't Moses, ultimately. It was Christ who did it. And Christ who was working through Moses. And it's such a powerful image of what baptism is. So when someone is baptized, we're saying, you know, you were rescued yourself from from slavery. You, You had an oppressive, evil power over you. And that power was broken through the cross of Christ. Christ rescued you from that power. And in the waters of baptism, you've passed through into a new life, into a new nation, into a new land, to become part of the people of God. A holy priesthood, a royal nation. That's what Jesus has achieved. That's what our baptism is symbolic of. Your old life, buried. Just as the enemies of Israel, the Egyptians came after them, buried in the ocean. What was our great enemy? Sin and death, buried in the death of Jesus Christ. And he rose again gloriously, symbolizing and signifying the certain resurrection for all whose faith is in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Right? That's true for the Israelites as well as for us. So he's using them as an example. All of this, they had it too. They had it too. He's saying, your ancestors actually are just like you. We're just like you. Rescued. Baptism. You have the Lord's Supper, they had spiritual food. You have the Holy Spirit living within you, they had the cloud. I like you. And then we have this really sobering word in verse 5. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, since they were struck down in the wilderness. Verse 8, let us not commit sexual immorality. Some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ, as some of them did. And were destroyed by snakes. Don't complain, as some of them did. And were killed by the destroyer. So what Paul doesn't actually allow us to do in this moment is, is go, well, I'm just so grateful that was them. Right? And not us. I'm so grateful that happened to them and that kind of thing can never happen to us. He's doing the very opposite thing. He's saying, this happened to them so it can happen to you. And you're like, what? Hang on a second. Really? Would God really act in such a way to his people today? And he's saying these things were, have been given as an example, it says in verse 13, as examples to us on whom the end of the ages have come. So if you're not feeling the sobering weight of that, you're not hearing the word properly. This is very sobering and it's very challenging. Difficult for us to know what do we do with this? What is is the challenge of this? 23,000 people died in one day. 
Here's what's happening here. The Apostle Paul is, as it were, yelling at the Corinthians. If your child runs towards the road, you yell at them because because you love them and you don't want them to be hit. You yell, stop. Paul's yelling at the Corinthians. It's got to stop. It's got to stop. You're testing Christ. Don't you see? He's saying, look, the Israelites, they they presumed upon the fact that, well, we know God's for us because he led us out of Egypt. We know God's for us because he parted the ocean. We know God's for us and not the Egyptians because the sea collapsed in on them. We know that God's for us because he provided us with manna from heaven. We know God's for us because he provided water from the rock. We know God's for us, so it doesn't really matter then if we worship an idol, which is what they did. If we indulge ourselves in sexual immorality, which is what they did. Because we are rescued people. And the, and the temptation is for you and I to think just the same. It doesn't really matter if I carry on in my sin because I'm rescued. Because I'm safe. And, and the, church can, the church can fall into this trap of thinking that the grace of God, the free gift of salvation means that sin no longer really is an issue. And, and so what Satan does, because he hates the message of God's grace, is he preaches this doctrine which is called antinomianism, anti-law, against the law of God. You can do whatever you want and sin is good. Indulge yourself in it. Live in it. And we very quickly go, I think I'll do that. Because it's, it's fun. And I want to. And this is what was happening to the Israelites. And this sobering, challenging word comes to the church in Corinth because they were collectively giving themselves over to idolatry and sexual immorality. And so this is a yelling moment. It's got to stop. It's got to stop. C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful book, The Problem of Pain, says this. We can ignore even pleasure But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, the challenge here is this. Does that mean that my pain and my suffering is God having a go at me because of my sin? No. You've got to hear this very clearly. Very clearly. Your suffering and your pain and your sickness is not necessarily a consequence of your sin. It's not. The disciples asked Jesus this. Is this man blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? Jesus was like, no, 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 no. So that the glory of God might be seen. But Paul is teaching that God has and can act in such a way to bring a form of judgment to arrest his people and to bring his people back from their idolatrous ways. And the Israelites are an example of that happening. And it's a challenge. Because the church is constantly 
feeling the pressure of the world to synchronize, to blend in, to change, to accommodate the values of society and the values of the world. And the pressure is constant. Not only is it constant externally, but even from within the church, the the pressure to change your position from what the Bible teaches. Particularly, in this instance, sexual morality. Change what you think. Reinterpret those texts. And the consequence for the church is devastating. And the consequence for the gospel is devastating. And the consequence for the nation is devastating. Because the gospel is what? It's good news for all people. And in this way, we have an enemy who wants to divert our attention. Now, it's important we hear that. All suffering is not a consequence of sin. But there is this holistic, and we have to understand, we we often read these texts and we only think about our own individual lives. He's speaking collectively to the church. He's speaking about this community of God's people. And he is saying, idolatry must stop. And he, he gives us this reassurance. No temptation will come upon you except that which is common to humanity. But listen to this. God is faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. The temptation, he'll provide a way out. Do you hear what he's saying? He's like, look, this is what can happen. Hey, but just so you know, God's faithful. He's not going to let this happen to you. It seems like a contradiction. And it's, it's challenging. On the one hand, God's saying, this will happen to you. And then on the other hand, he's saying, but I'm not going to let it happen to you. <laughs> right? It's a bit, again, it's a bit like you say, if you're running to the road, you could get hit. And I love you, and I'm not going to let that happen to you. But you need to listen to me. The best way, Spurgeon said, the best way from stopping people from running off a cliff is to tell them that they will be absolutely decimated if they do so. And you're going to stay away from the cliff. It's challenging. It's difficult, but it's necessary for us to hear. Secondly, I want us to think, so firstly, that was the example of the Israelites. I want us to think, what is the objective of this, ultimately? What is, what is it that the Lord is really wanting to do here? And I want to focus in on verse 6. Now, these things took place as an example for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. The NIV puts it like this. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil as they did. All right, listen, God wants your heart. He wants your desires. He wants your passions. He wants the deepest parts of you. He wants your whole heart. It's what he wants. This is what this is about. He wants the heart and the passion of this church. He wants the heart and the passion of his people. I want to illustrate what's happening here with this illustration, which I found helpful. Right, I want you to imagine you've invited guests around to your home for a meal. And they arrive, they knock on the door, your guests are there, bottle of wine, flowers, chocolates, now those kind of guests that you keep inviting back. As, as you let them into, into your house, you say, um, hey, make yourself at home, take a seat. Just finishing off dinner. A few moments later, dinner's ready. You bring them through to the dining room. Take a seat at the table. You're going to love this meal. 
standard line in my house when I've been cooking. You're going to love this. You're going to love this. And they take their seats. You're having a great time enjoying the meal together. And then uh, after a few minutes, one of your guests asks to be excused, and you tell them where the toilet is, and off they go. You think nothing of it. Five minutes passes, and they still haven't returned. Ten minutes. You're beginning to wonder, I hope everything's okay. After 20 minutes, you're actually quite concerned. Shall I go and check? So you, you make your way upstairs to the, to the toilet, and you find the toilet doors open. They're not there. Strange. And then you, you hear some noise in one of, the, one of the bedrooms. You walk down the corridor, you find your bedroom doors open. And you walk into your bedroom, into your bedroom, and you find that the drawers to all your cupboards have been pulled open. You look on the floor, and you find all your bank statements strewn all over the floor. And there's your guest sat at your desk with your laptop open, flicking through your files, checking your search history. What are you doing? You ask. What are you doing? I say, well, you said, make myself at home. I just want to try and understand you a bit better. What makes you tick? Right, here's the point. Here's the point. The illustration. Is Jesus a guest in your house? Or does Jesus get the keys? Does Jesus get to make himself at home? Are there certain rooms he's not allowed in? Are there certain drawers he's not to open? Is he okay to just roam? So when, you, when we say, Lord, come into my life, come into my heart, come and make yourself at home, he takes you at your word. And he wants your heart. And he sees your heart. He sees you. Psalm 139, beautiful psalm, verses 23 to 24. Search me. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. The Lord searches our hearts today. The Lord searches your heart. Do you trust him? Do you trust him with your heart? Do you trust Jesus with your heart? Because you should. You should trust the one who was crucified because of his love for you. You can trust the one who went to the cross and died in that agony and humiliation. You can trust him with your heart. You can trust him. And because he loves you that much, he's not going to let you stay in bondage. He's not going to let you stay in slavery. He's not going to allow the idols just to build up. He's going to come and he's going to tenderly say, I'm going to take that out. And sometimes the process of that 
can be very uncomfortable, like a doctor putting his finger on a wound and going, oh, that's where it hurts. Sometimes the finger comes and the pressure's applied. Oh, don't touch that. But the Lord would say, it's for that that I've come because I want to heal you. I want wholehearted devotion because I love you and because I am your God. King David said this to his son Solomon. My son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house as a sanctuary. Be strong and do the work. Wholehearted devotion. And if you know the story of Solomon, he made a few mistakes. And he built up idols. Not just one or two. He gathered hundreds, literally. And he had hundreds of wives and concubines. And he, and he, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And he says right at the end, he says, do you know what? I've learned this. In your youth, don't forget your creator. And the meaninglessness of his idolatry was exposed and he returned to God. He wants your heart. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So that's why our hearts are searched. That's why Paul brings this challenge to the church in Corinth. That's why it hits home. That's why it's hard. Because our hearts, as Calvin put it, are like idol factories. There are so many things competing for my affection and your affection. And you know it. I know it. I know how easily misled I can be. And I know that nothing can possibly come close to dealing with the thirst of my heart than the spring water that comes, the spring rain that comes from the Spirit of God. You have been made for relationship with Him. And worship is not just because there is one God. You were made to worship God. You're a worshiper. That's who you are. And you will worship something. The question is, will you worship a an idol, a false god, or the creator who's revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Not just your creator, but your savior. And not just your savior, but your friend. And not just someone who comes to be a guest in your house, someone that comes to indwell you by his spirit. So that you might indwell him. So Jesus said to his disciples, I'm gonna go and prepare a room for you in my father's house. And that's what happened at the cross. Jesus prepares a room for us. You've got access to that room now because the Spirit of God is the one that comes to bring us home to the Father. So the Father's house is your privilege and your right always. You get to dwell with God now and forevermore. Actually, it's not just a waiting until you die. That access to the Father is now for you. Now, now you can pray to the Father. Now you can know the Father's embrace. 
Now you can know that big bear hug of God that Luke was referencing. You can know that intimate embrace. So I'm sat there during worship thinking, I've got a sermon to preach, and we've been going, and I'm thinking, but this is the work of, this is God right now. So what was happening in worship was that there, and I hope you felt it too, but there was a sense of the tenderness of the Father among us so that, that we were experiencing in the Spirit what I believe Paul is urging the Corinthians to experience and to know in this text. So this isn't just theoretical. This is applied and real and living and felt, and this is what's happening among us today. And I hope that you're able to join in with that. I hope you didn't feel like you were sitting on the edge, looking in on other people having a great time, whilst you were a bit confused by it all. And the invitation to you today is come. Come. So Paul then says in verse 14, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. I'm speaking to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I am saying. That's the consequence. (laughs) When you see your idol for what it really is, when you see your idol for what it really is, well, what is it really? It's a competitor for the unrivaled joy promised to you in the gospel. That's what your idol really is. So what's your thing? What's your thing? What is it in the drawer? What is it on the bank statement? What is it in your internet search history? What is the thing? What is the idol? So see those things as they need to be seen, as a competitor for true, true joy in Christ. Now flee it. Flee from it. Run from it. Have nothing to do with it. Have nothing to do with it. Think of Joseph. Joseph as he was being tempted into Potiphar's wife's chambers. She wanted him. She wanted him to sleep with her. And what did he do? He left his cloak and he ran. He fled. Sometimes it requires that kind of very real, I'm going to flee this moment. I'm not going to allow this thing to drag me away from the joy and the happiness that God has promised me. And then lastly, and I haven't read out the whole passage. I apologize. We've run out of time. I'd encourage you, please read through it. There's so much here. Verse 31. One of the most quotable verses in the whole book of Corinthians, and maybe in the whole Bible. So whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, Do everything for the glory of God. If I could apply that principle to every moment of my life. Everything for the glory of God. That's how I live my best life. Whether eating or drinking. Whatever's put before you. Here's a moment to glorify God. Worship. Worship isn't simply the songs that we sing when we gather as a church on a Sunday. Worship is the decision you make when you're on your own without church family around you. Worship is the opportunity you have as you parent your children. Worship is the opportunity you have when you're sat at your desk and you are tempted to make an unethical decision. You can make a God-glorifying decision in that moment. Whatever it is, whatever you do, it's an umbrella for how we live our lives as Christians. We do it all for the glory of God. Amen? We do it all for the glory of God. 
He wants to come and make his home among us. And when we put him first, everything else takes its rightful place. Do you know that? We love others best when we love Christ most. I love my wife best if I love Christ more. I love my children best if I love Christ more. I love my church best if I love Christ more. If I put him first, everything else finds its rightful order and place. If he's my God, if he's my all in all, I love, if I love Christ most, I love everything else best. I'm gonna invite the band to come and I want us to just respond with a golden oldie that I've chosen, which really captures, I think, the heart of this word. Why don't we stand? Why don't we close our eyes? If we're comfortable doing that, is Jesus a guest? Well, has he got the keys to your heart? Do you trust him with the keys to your heart today? And so, Father, we, we thank you that there is but one God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We, Lord Jesus, today invite you to come and to dwell in our hearts. Let nothing rival you for supremacy in our hearts. And forgive us, Lord, where we turn to idols. We, we ask that you would have your way. We want to serve no foreign God. We want to have no treasure besides you. You're our heart's desire. You are the desire of our hearts, Lord Jesus Christ. And we give our hearts to you today. And we love and worship you. Amen.